So, Lord, we bless Martin as he brings your word to us today. And we ask it will be just that, your word to us, and will challenge us and will take us onwards in our relationships with you and fulfil the purposes for which you're sending it. In Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Oh. So, friends, today we continue with our exploration of the restoration of the people of God from exile in Babylon to Judah, and in particular to Jerusalem and the temple. A brief reminder, though, of where that's, that's sort of this series sits within the overview of um, God's people. Uh, we saw this slide in detail a couple of weeks ago. So, um, as you see, we go from creation through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and the exodus, that event, uh, escape from slavery in Egypt into the wilderness and then to the promised land. In terms of rulership, it moves from judges to kings. Um, and then the, 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 the sin of the people is sufficient for them to be conquered, so they go into exile. Seventy years later, there's a start of a return. And then that return uh, continues uh, with, with prophecies and, um, uh, and uh, sorry, prophetic, uh, the, the post-exile prophets, there we go. Then there's a big gap in years. Um, but actually, just like there was 400 years gap between uh, the people going into Egypt and them escaping. And then we see the New Testament of Jesus, his incarnation, miracles, and so on and so on. And Pentecost, gospel to Gentile, moves out to the Gentiles, including Samaria, which we'll come back to you later. Um, then we sort of sit ourselves today in that period of biblical timeline before we think of Revelation as being something that is still to come, um, still to be fulfilled. So in terms of uh, our topics for these few weeks, we're in the midst, we're talking about the restore of the rule of law. Hopefully most of you have been to at least one of the series in advance, uh, before this, uh, looking at Ezra uh, and uh, Zerubbabel uh, before him, um, and quite how that worked. So, I'm supposed to be preaching on Nehemiah chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, on restoring the rule of law. And I hope you've all read that at home in preparation for this morning. No. Surely not. Um, uh, restoring the rule of law by which I think we mean something around governance, around lawful behavior, about state-enforced sanctions for those who misbehave. And I want to compare and contrast a little bit Nehemiah's style of leadership with Ezra's, which means that we do need to return briefly to last week's topic. And what for me is the awfulness of Ezra chapter 10. So last week we saw Ezra, the purist, insisting that the people put away their foreign, li- foreign wives. This is Ezra's initial briefing then from some of the leaders. It comes from uh, Ezra chapter 9 and it runs like this. The people of Israel, including the priests, the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. Like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians and the Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. You can almost hear the indignation rising. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. And of course, Ezra's briefing came from some of those leaders who had not done this. And so their self-righteousness was very clear. 
as we saw last week, Ezra insisted that all the people put away their foreign wives and the mixed-race children that ensued from those relationships. There were so many that it took two whole months to work through the nation case by case. And those wives and children were put out from the Israelites to what future? A life of security and prosperity? I don't think so. More likely a life of insecurity and poverty away from historic lands, those lands which produce crops, thus food and prosperity. Obviously, purity of relationships was something that God was keen on. He commanded it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and then again here in Exodus uh, 34. Runs like this. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Be careful not to make a treaty with them, with those who live in the, in, in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare to you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Be careful then not to make a treaty with those who live in the land. For when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when... Not if, but when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and if those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. I'm very intrigued by that when. Because God sets out an ideal, but then he gives a warning about what happens when you don't follow the ideal. So those seven other nations then, the people were supposed to utterly destroy them. That's another challenging instruction from God, because we politely don't talk of genocide, but that's what was intended. Clearly they didn't do that, and so we have a warning from God that he wants purity of worship actually above ethnic purity. And yet here's Ezra forcing the people to separate, not on account of mixed religious outlook, but on account of mixed ethnicity which he assumes to imply mixed religious outlook. And notice that the Old Testament, in other ways, is open to a more generous view of the surrounding nations. What was Jonah doing? Well, he was sent to Nineveh to challenge them to repent and thus to honour the God of the Hebrews. And then there's Ruth, the Moabite, and Rahab, the prostitute or innkeeper of Jericho, a Canaanite. They both are in the direct ancestry of Jesus. And certainly Ruth adopted the practices of worshipping God, God of the Hebrews, that is. Thus we read Matthew chapter 1, um, 5 and 6. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse the father of David the king. So a Canaanite woman marries an Israelite. Their son marries a Moabite, and their grandson was King David, which makes David one-eighth, I think, Moabite, and one-sixteenth Canaanite. And then there's his son Solomon, who married, well, pretty much everyone, or should I say everyone who was pretty, including, according to 1 Kings 11, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. And yes, eventually, but only when he was old did they turn his head away from devotion to God? 
But with 700 wives and 300 concubines, it would have been hard not to listen to any of them. And then years later, here's Ezra. Ezra who says it's not right, all this marrying of people from other nations. I wonder if he'd lost track of the intent, which was purity of worship. As in every household, in a, everyone in a household is to worship God alone. And so he got all wrapped up in an outworking of that law, which was purity of ethnicity in marriage. And I wonder whether it's no coincidence that the protesters' names are preserved, those who did not want Ezra to go down this route. And, yes, if you were here, you would recall Helen managed to pronounce them perfectly. I'm not even going to attempt. No wonder also that Malachi, who was a contemporary of Ezra, has, a, I think, a bit of a swipe at Ezra's actions. So there's Malachi in the bottom right-hand corner uh, of a chart that we might have, you've seen before. Um, it just gives us some sense of overview as to where we're at. We're at the bottom end now. Nehemiah comes back. This is what Malachi chapter 2 reads like. 2 verse 11. Judah, he says, has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord of Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings and accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? God's response is, it's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Amalekai goes on. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. That's Malachi, the contemporary of Ezra. So Malachi wrote this around about the same time that Ezra was forcing the, return, the returning exiles to divorce the foreign wife of their youth. So this feels like quite an indictment of Ezra and his actions. For me then, I recognize that leadership exercised in Ezra was actually not that helpful and caused major distress to those banished by the actions he initiated. And yet, the people followed his lead. He did not give an option to those mixed-race couples to declare a unity in worship of God. He just declared the letter of the law. There was no option of conversion. There was no option of assuring the judges that worship of God alone took place in that household. In other words, he stuck with God's ideal, but forgot the bit that God also lives and loves us and offers us grace when our reality does not match up to his ideal. So we've seen something of the difficulty in Ezra, of putting a priest 
a teacher of the law in charge. It can lead to some difficult-to-live-with decisions. In contrast, then, we have Nehemiah, more the administrator, the politically savvy technocrat uh, who also had a faith. In our passage, Nehemiah is in charge. He challenges the people to build a wall as a way of keeping out the the riffraff, the the non-God-honoring foreigners. And I recognize that walls are back in fashion and have often in the past been used as a means of separation. Thus, the Great Wall of China, Hadrian's Wall, even the Israeli-Palestinian Wall has been described as a wall of separation. And if you can pick it out, on, certainly on this screen, you can see how close the two communities are on either side of that wall. Each wall separated one form of governance and thus vision and values about how things should run and should be from another set of vision and values. This wall was no different. And remember, for the Israelites of the Old Testament, there was an emphasis on communal holiness, which we, in these post-incarnation of Jesus days, have largely replaced with a focus on individual holiness, individual relationship with Jesus. So as we start, as we heard, Nehemiah 1 to 4 starts with Nehemiah hearing bad, sad news from Jerusalem. Fasting, so then he fasted and prayed for God's intervention in the situation. In chapter 2, we see Nehemiah as cupbearer to the king, gets to tell the king, that is King Artaxerxes, about his woes. And he's sent to Jerusalem with a letter to allow him to get lots of timber. The local mafia, shall we say, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, are rather put out by this. Then after an inspection of the walls of the city, so Nehemiah encourages the Israelites to get on with the job. Chapter 3 is a record of which families built which part of the wall. And so we've picked up this morning already in chapter 4. And the opposition, as we heard, from Sanballat and Tobiah and the others continues... And it continues on beyond our reading in chapter 4, and then again in chapter 6, and even after the wall was completed. Now that wall, the wall around the city of Jerusalem, took 52 days to complete. They slept in shifts, they stayed on guard, and they stayed clothed throughout that time, ready to fight at any moment. This was not your usual 9 to 5 job with weekends off. So why was it such a big problem to these guys, to Sanballat and Tobiah and their mates. Well, Sanballat was a Horonite from the uh, um, city Horon, I think, uh, and Tobiah and Ammonite. They were two of the people groups that God had driven from the Promised Land for the Israelites. Now, from the Bible, that's kind of all we know about Sanballat, but extra-biblical evidence, in other words, surviving papyri, suggests that Sanballat was the governor of Samaria. Hence, you might think, he has the authority to speak in front of the army of Samaria. So let's turn our attention to the Samaritans for a little while. They were effectively the rump of the ten tribes, which, we, which were the northern kingdom of Israel. Yes, many had been carried off into exile under the Assyrians in 722-721 BC, and had stayed wherever they went. But others had remained in the land, and had intermarried with the new people groups that the Assyrians sent there. 
So when the Jews first came back under Zerubbabel and started rebuilding the temple, they offered to help, but they were rejected roundly. That's the story there, Ezra chapter 4. Then as we've talked already, uh, about already, Ezra brought in reforms which tackled in his own people the very thing the Samaritans did. That is, to marry people from other cultures. Ezra then becomes, I think, a bit of a boo-hiss kind of character for his intolerance, but also practically, since many of those foreign wives and children that were put away from the Israelites would have gone to probably Samaria. And so little wonder that there was good links between the peoples, husbands making contact with ex-wives and so on, but the leaders were antagonistic to each other. And then here comes Nehemiah, who strengthens the place of the temple in Jerusalem by building a wall around the city of Jerusalem. And in doing so, I think he implicitly challenges the place of Shechem, which is in Samaria, and Shechem includes Mount Gerizim, which was later to become the center of worship for Samaritans as the place to worship God. But it could have been the place for all those who saw their roots in the Mosaic tradition were it not for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So if you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the focus of worship is in Shechem, which is in Samaria. Jerusalem gets a look in as David conquers it much later on. And it's David that draws the focus of worship into Judah, whereas in the, under the United Kingdom, they were all one. And they worshipped basically at Shechem. Yes, you've got an intriguing story in the Abraham of Melchizedek. And um, the, the priest Melchizedek was the, the um, priest of Salem. Sort of Jehu Salem. Um, but beyond that, there's not much mention of Jerusalem in the first five books of the Old Testament. So I think that perhaps... Sanballat was hoping to make Shechem the major place for worship, but Nehemiah, in, in building the walls of, the, of Jerusalem and shoring up the place of the temple, really was creating a new um, um, a, a new, not a new, but a renewed place of worship, which then was in competition with the area that Sanballat was in charge of. Now, I think it's worth noticing that when it gets to the book of Chronicles, that the relationship between the north and the south had broken down so much that the compiler of the the book of Chronicles completely ignores the history of the northern kingdom. That is, the precursor to Samaria. As if by the time it was compiled, so the northern kingdom was, was considered to be no better than any of the other surrounding kingdoms even though it contained 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember, though, all is not lost. Jesus works with the woman at the well at Sychar in Samaria, and then the whole village, and later declares that the good news will spread through Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And by Acts chapter 8, so there are disciples living in Samaria. Now let's go back to Nehemiah. Back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah's response to this opposition from Sanballat and Tobiah was that he prayed. 
There you go, verses 4 and 5. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. He prayed, really, for the frustration of his enemies' hopes. And that the people worked, and, and then we see that the people worked with all their hearts. Uh, with all their heart, even, so it's verse, six, verse 6. And despite further opposition, they prayed again. And with a combination, then, of prayer, courage, determination and the will to continue meant that as we've talked about they completed the task in 52 days 52 days to build a wall around a city if any of you've ever tried to get an extension built you will know that that is quite a herculean task and so the rule of law apparently was restored in that the opposition to Nehemiah's governorship ended. And it was possible for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, to be the guidance from God by which the people lived and the standard they aspired to. And we see more of that next week. What about us then? Where do you place yourself in this story? Do you have a unity of worship of God in your household? Do you identify more with Nehemiah the wily strategist who motivated his people to work really hard on rebuilding the walls? Or do you have sympathy for Ezra, the legalistic purist? Or do you identify more with Sanballat, who was from a culture more laid back, less committed to the particularities of faith? Maybe you have confidence to follow leadership even into folly. Is the rule of law respected in your life? Or perhaps there are elements of the law that you echo from Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist, as in, I'll read it to you, it's quite small. When Mr. Bumble, the unhappy spouse of a domineering wife, is told in court that the law supposes that your wife acts under your direction, Mr. Bumble replies, if the law supposes that, said Mr. Bumble, squeezing his hat emphatically in both hands, then the law is an ass, an idiot. Are there elements of the law that you echo from this? And how then do you act? For me, as leader here, it drives me to my knees again. For the responsibilities of all in leadership to show wisdom and right decision-making is great and not to be held lightly. Do please pray for leaders both in church and state in your workplaces, also leaders in the schools and colleges that you have links with. I think we need to recognise that all walls are probably politically motivated, but also that walls can be in our hearts. Years ago, the motto of Ridley Hall Theological College when Graham Cray was in charge was, roots down, walls down. And that perhaps ought to be our calling too, that we put our roots down deep in scripture, and more on that next week, but also bring down any dividing walls of hostility. May you have confidence then in our God to live at peace. Amen.